So we're, and I don't really, I honestly don't know how long this little series is going to go, but it's, but the Lord has laid this on my heart, and so I want to spend some time on it today, and maybe next Sunday, maybe it'll go out a few more Sundays after that, but we'll see where this uh, goes as I continue to pray and think about through all of this. There's a classic text uh, in the book of Jeremiah that is among uh, my most favorite texts, um, and in fact, by the way, I, I will be going through a, a number of different texts this morning. So if you have, and I think they're like really cool texts. So if you uh, if you have a pen and paper and want to uh, write them down and explore them later on this week, that would be great, uh, I think, for you and for me and for the church. So uh, in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, um, this is well into the book of Jeremiah. Um, he says the following, verse uh, yeah, verse 9, it says 19, but I believe it's, Verse 9, it's either 9 or 19, uh, I may have a typo here, where he says, But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. Just a very, uh, uh, you know, visceral statement that he makes in the middle of his ministry. Now, what's interesting about this particular text is that uh, Jeremiah was one of those prophets that was trying to warn Israel about their idolatry, about their disobedience to God, about their lack of attention to him their pursuit of other gods, and that if they didn't repent, that God would would discipline them. He would punish them. And um, as is true for most of humanity and throughout all ages and ourselves and our children, uh, when we're warned about something and we say, if you keep doing this, this is what's going to happen, you're either ignored or made fun of or whatever. But in any case, for Jeremiah, what happened to him was he was pretty abused. In fact, theologians oftentimes refer to Jeremiah the prophet as the weeping prophet. Weeping because of what was happening to Israel, weeping because of what happened to him, because he was not received well by his fellow Israelites, and he was abused. He was beaten um, he was um, uh, persecuted, um, he was left to go hungry, he was buried alive, all kinds of things happened to him, and he recounted those things prior to Jeremiah 29. So you just read about all these horrible things that happened to him by priests in Jerusalem, nonetheless, and he says this, that even though you have abused me the way that you have abused me, but if I say I will not mention him, nor speak any more in his name, then in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, shut up in my bones. Now, the, the use of the word bones there is, 
<clears throat> is important because because the Jews believed that that your bones were the very core, the very essence of your life. If your bones were dry and brittle, there was no life left. Um, and so the use of the term bones here is basically saying this fire burns in the very essence of where my life is. And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. And in the NIV, it says, I cannot endure it. So he's saying, the way in which I suffered and the manner in which I suffered is more endurable than trying to hold the word of God inside of me and not say it. Does this make sense to you? I mean, so do you see the power of the statement then? He's saying, I would rather suffer, be abused, go hungry, be beaten, get buried alive, than have to hold this word of God that's in me, that's burning in my bones to say. Now, would it be that every pastor of the 350-some thousand churches that are a part of North America, would it be that every pastor had this going on in their life right now? That whatever needs to be said, however the Holy Spirit is leading a, a pastor to, uh, to speak, that they speak and say what the Holy Spirit is guiding them to speak and to say. This is part of the problem. We've lost all but our prophetic voice uh, in this culture that we live in. And so, I mean, we still have somewhat of a priestly voice. God loves you. God is good. You know, help me take, let me take care of you. Those are all priestly kinds of things, and those are all very, very important. But there are two voices of a pastor, the priestly voice and the prophetic voice. The priestly voice, thus say, the priestly voice, which is um, the Lord love you, the Lord loves you, he cares about you, we love you, we care about you. The prophetic voice, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. So, all that to say that, you know, as I was preparing for this morning, that, that part of what I'm going to talk about this morning may make some people a little uncomfortable. But that, too, is the role of the pastor. And by the way, let me just, let me just say that what I'm going to share with you this morning, uh, you know, I mean, it, there, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of blowback in my own life as I, as I reflected upon what I feel like the Lord is sharing, wants me to share with you this morning. So I will get as far as I can with what I've prepared, and if I need to carry it over to next Sunday, that's what I will do. I hope you will track with me in that. I hope that people who might be listening uh, through Facebook or through YouTube will do the same. And I think I hope that people who are traveling or not, can't be here will spend some time on this little series because I think it's a pivotal series. So the, we began this morning's service with this call to worship that, um, that we get from, um, um, and it's, and I'm, I apologize, it should not say 1 Corinthians 9 there. Uh, 
I was supposed to change that and I didn't. So this is from Psalm 90, beginning with verse 12. So that should say Psalm 90, beginning with verse 12, where the psalmist records, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Your NIV says that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So teach us to number. Help us to think through the days that we have here on earth and what is left of those or how many we get and that as we reflect upon those days that we would we would gain a heart of wisdom that we would know what to do with those days so do you know what you are going to do with the rest of the days that you have left here on earth? Have you, have I, have we considered what that means for us? Some of us here are very young. Some of us, not so much. Someone here just this past week said to me, I'm in the final quarter of my life. (laughs) You know, and for some of us, that's true. I'm 62. My parents lived until they were 74 years of age. People tend to follow the same length of life that their parents had. I don't know if you know this, but you can be in excellent health your whole life and gain only six months over what your parents might have lived. So your quality of life is better. But you just may not gain that unless you're like really severely, you know, doing stuff to your body. But on the average. But here I am. I'm 62. I'm going to be, uh, you know, in 12 years, I'm going to be 74. What, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I don't know. Seems to me like, you know, I'm in the final two minutes or overtime or something like that, you know. But I want the rest of my life to count. I want it to mean something. And maybe next week I will share with you more specifically what that will be because then you can help me, help hold me accountable to that. What I think I need to do, if not over the course of the next 12 years or so, but at least over the course of the next year or two. Teach me, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I want the wisdom that comes from knowing how I can best live the remainder of my life while I'm here on this earth. Do you? Because if it doesn't matter to you, that's kind of too bad because it really does matter to God. (laughs) It really matters to God how we spend the course of our days and years on this planet. So then he goes on to say, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So he's saying, look, life is difficult. He's implying here, life is difficult. Life is suffering. 
And it'll be good when the Lord comes back. It'll be good when I get to be in the presence of God to be relieved of this. But that may be a while. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. So despite the fact that we live in a world that can be evil, that there can be suffering, make us glad anyway. And for as many years as we have seen evil. Verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants. So allow us to see how you're working, God. And your glorious power to their children. Give our children hope, too. Let them be encouraged. Verse 17. Let the fear of the Lord our God be upon us. Let the reverence, the respect, let all of that be a part of our life as we live out the remainder of our days. And establish the work of our hands upon us. So just because... Um, we live in this world that's difficult, where there's suffering and travail, doesn't mean that we don't have a job to do. In fact, it's precisely because there is suffering and travail and evil, it's precisely because of that that God wants to use us to counter that in the world in which we live. That's what he's saying here. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Establish what you want us to do. Even though we live in a world that's not very fun sometimes and that can be very difficult. So in essence, show us how to live our lives obediently and well with intentionality and purpose. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And the reverse of that is, if we do not obey his commandments, we do not love him. That's the implication. I mean, that's the, that's the truth of that statement. Show us how to live our lives obediently and well with intentionality and purpose. Now, Earlier this week, we were in a conversation with a group of men, and uh, Rocky brought up an inter interesting st 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 statistic. <laughs> Didn't affect me at all. <laughs> so, but anyway, Rocky uh, shared a statistic with us. He was listening to a pastor of a large church, a large alliance church in Alaska. And I tried to find this statistic. I couldn't. It's kind of obscure, so it would be hard to find unless I knew exactly where to go, whether I had to go to Barna or some other um, person who does a lot of social research. But, uh, but this is what Rocky said. This is what Rocky said, the pastor said, that 80% of the people who, who hear the sermon on any given Sunday do nothing with it. 80% of the people, 80% of the people who hear a sermon on any given Sunday do nothing with it. Now, I'm guessing that we have about 50 people here. So around 10 people might take, statistically, might take what I have to say this morning 
and decide to change or alter their life with it, and the other 40 or so, not so much. By the way, I told him I wasn't surprised by that statistic. And, and let me just say this. Uh, I'm in a better place than most pastors. I really am. I think that that's one of the reasons why many pastors leave the ministry is because they become so discouraged by that particular statistic. There's a tremendous amount of discouragement in that way. So what will we do with what I have to say this morning? How will we allow that to impact our testimony in life, the way in which we live life, the story of our life? How will we allow that to do it? And I I hope that what I have to share with you this morning, in addition to what I've talked to you about time, will have the kind of impact that I'm hoping it will have. Testimony is important. Our life story speaks to others, and it most certainly speaks to God. Tony Campolo, one of the the great Christian speakers of uh, years ago, tells the story. He attended an African-American church on a regular basis, and he told the story of how he was at a funeral and the African-American pastor was giving the homily, and um, he was talking about what a great saint this person was who had just died, that they had a tremendous testimony. And then really, as I think is my experience has been, you know, there's so many you know, of the African-American pastors who I've heard, they have such a wonderful grasp of the word sometimes and can deliver it in such a powerful way. He started going through the Old Testament about someone's title versus someone's testimony. You know, we're all looking for titles, many of us, right, in this world in which we live. We want our testimony to be about our title. Who are we? What was our significance? Uh, how far up the whatever ladder did we go, and those kinds of things. So he started recounting where he said something like, you know, Cain had the title. He was the firstborn. But Abel had the testimony. Esau had the title. He was also the firstborn. But Jacob had the testimony. Pharaoh had the title. But Moses had the testimony. Saul, the first king, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Saul, the first king, had the title. But David had the testimony. Caesar had the title. But Paul had the testimony. And really, for many of us, that's our distraction and our temptation in life is to pursue the titles versus establishing the testimony. So I want to challenge all of us this morning about what kind of testimony we will have for the remainder of the days, for the remainder of the time that we have here on earth. And some of us might think, well, we have a long time. Well, you know, 
The only two guarantees in life are death and taxes, right? So you don't know how long you have. You just don't. You know, sometimes when we talk about the Lord coming back, that's the end of our time here for those of us who are believers. I was always hopeful that the Lord would, when he came back, I'd be in the middle of bringing somebody to faith in Christ or something like that, you know. But probably I'll be doing something stupid when the Lord comes back. And I'll really count on his grace. (laughs) Please, you know. I know this was dumb, but really I do love you, you know, that kind of thing. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So that is, that is what you would say an already and not yet thing. Throughout the course of history, there have been many times when the church, when Christians have had an opportunity to do great works. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And then something happened within that world, that part of the world, that culture among those people, and, no, and it was night. And then those works could no longer be done. But then the, the not yet portion of this is, is that someday the Lord's going to come back. And when he comes back, night will descend upon the planet. And then the works that we could have done cannot be done. The people that could have been saved will not be saved, potentially. Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So if you, are, if you walk among people who are unbelievers, then the time clock begins. The stopwatch begins and we have in that time an opportunity to reach those people and so we pray teach us to number our days all right O lord that we may gain the heart of wisdom that we would know how we could impact those people's lives with our life with the christ that is in us and really i just want to tell you When Christ blooms in your life and you are among unbelievers, it really can be a very powerful thing. For some, you you may be ridiculed. You You may be like Jeremiah. But for many others, it's the first time they've seen any kind of light or hope or an alternative to the world in which they live. You may never lead that person to Christ, but you may plant a lot of seeds. Seeds are a precursor to plants. Plants are a precursor to fruit. And fruit is a precursor to sustenance and life. Paul also says in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. That as you are trying to make the best use of the time, the Lord will speak to you about how to use that time and what to put in place of that time, in that spot. There's a quote here, and I think I might have, um, I might, I, it may not be up here, but the former Secretary General, a guy named Dag Hammerskiold, Dag Hammerskiold, once said, oh, there we go, I do have it, yay, we are not permitted to choose the frame of our destiny. But what we put into it is ours. You did not choose where you were born. You did not choose when you were born. You did not choose uh, like the family you were born into, the country that you were born. You didn't choose any of that. You may not have even chosen where you live right now. But what you put into that belongs to you. You own it. That's your frame. So, if we move on to the next slide, whether it's work, Bria would be the slide with the, all the, the, yeah. Whether it's work or family, whether it's fitness and exercise, whether it's recreation, whether it's travel or hobbies, or whether it's your faith, all of these things fit into the frame of destiny that God has given to us. Some of us have filled that frame up a good bit. Others are just now beginning to fill that frame up. And right now, it's not too early to ask yourself the question, what am I going to fill the rest of this up with? And those of us who have already filled it up, maybe there's some other things that would be better things that we could stuff into the rest of that to counter some of the things that shouldn't be in there or that are in there in a misprioritized manner. So this is the world that we live in. This is the frame of destiny that God has given to us. Now, when we talk about time, there is a parable that implies both time and, um, and effort, production. Like, what do we do? If we number our days all right, O oh Lord, and we have the wisdom about how to use that time, that wisdom has to do with production. It has to do with what how our life is productive and how we're going to use the remainder of our days in a way that is good and helpful and redemptive and glorifying to God and honoring to him. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Now, before we get into this parable, I just want to make a couple of really noteworthy comments regarding it. 
and I want I want just to preface it with this that it really is interesting to me how how parables like this are quaintified um, when in reality there isn't anything quaint about it. This is a parable that includes both great promises and terrifying possibilities. This is a parable that includes both great promises and terrifying possibilities. And it is written for the believer. It's not written for the unbeliever. It's written for the believer. I don't know how you would interpret this for an unbeliever. Oh, I suppose you could jump through a bunch of different kinds of hoops, but I, I don't know how you can do it in an intellectually honest way. Now, the other thing that's worth mentioning here is the context. Like, where does this appear? You know, when you read Scripture, context is crucial. Context is key because you can do a lot of crazy things with Scripture out of its context. But the context here is really important. So in the context, in the preceding chapter, which is one of the longer chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew in chapter 24 begins with the end times and judgment, signs of the end of the age, the abomination of the desolation where the temple is, is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, where where the, the temple of, of God is, is not destroyed, but desecrated. The coming of the Son of Man and the lesson of the fig tree. And in all of those things that Jesus taught on, it had to do with eschatology and the apocalypse. So preceding chapter 25 are all of these things towards the end of the math of, of the gospel of, of Matthew, towards the very end of that, we have Matthew including all of these teachings about the about eschatology, what's going to happen at the end times, and the apocalypse, like how the world is going to end. Period. Then in Matthew 25, we get the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable of the ten virgins has to do with the virgins being prepared for the bridegroom. And that half were and half were not. So when the bridegroom showed up, five of them thought, well, you know, it's possible this bridegroom may show up. And if he does, we want to look our best so that he'll select us. But the other five were like, we're not prepared. And they're thinking when he did show up, they're thinking, you know, if I'd had a little, just a little bit of a, a warning, I could have done something with my hair, maybe put some makeup on, put a fresh, pe- uh, some clothing or whatever, so that I would have looked more presentable. Too late. So half were prepared and half were not. Then he goes on to the parable of the talents and then the final judgment. But the parable of the talents has to do Ultimately, with judgment. With how we've used our time and the production that we were able to gain out of that time on behalf of the master. See, this is where we're getting into, like, you know, the Jeremiah 29 thing where it gets uncomfortable. 
But I think we have to we have to discuss this and we have to talk about it. And by the way, <coughs> if you have any questions or concerns or comments, always raise your hand. That, that never bothers me because sometimes we're talking about stuff that is intense and deeper and maybe not as clear. And so I always want you to feel free to do that. And then right after the parable of the talents, we have the final judgment of what's going to happen to humankind. <coughs> Excuse me. So then we begin with verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. Uh, to the one he gave five talents, to the other two, to another one, to each according to his ability. So um, this word entrusted uh, has to do with um, he's giving something to somebody to care for it uh, is what it means. So we'll talk a little bit more about that further in, but that's kind of where it's going to with it. But to the one he gave five talents. Now, a, a talent was a unit of currency based on weight that can be gold or silver. Now, this is a little parenthetical thing here. My ESV says talent. My old NIV says talent. My new NIV says gold bags. Is that what yours says right there? Gold bags, yeah. And that's what... That's one reason why you read different translations, because the interpreters want to give you a, you know, help you sometimes. Sometimes they help a little too much. But um, the important thing to understand is that a talent was a unit of currency based on gold or silver, predicated on weight. Now, each unit uh, or talent... <coughs> Was, was based on, this is what it was. Each unit in Jesus' time was worth 20 years a day's wage. And so when you break it down, uh, it, go, it looks like this. A talent is 20 years of a day's wage. One talent. So, if back then... You were paid seven days a week, which you would not be, nor would you be today necessarily. You might, but, <coughs> excuse me, paid seven days a week at $200 a day and let's say $25 per hour. $25 per hour around here is a pretty decent wage, but in other metropolitan centers, it's like uh, barely cost of living. So I just, I just sort of amortized some things out. So the servant with the one talent was going to receive one talent at 20 years of a day's wage, he would have been given $182,500 to invest. Now, if you were given $182,500, would that be a helpful chunk of change for you to play with? Huh? You could probably get some things done with that, couldn't you? So if you made two talents you basically were getting enough of a wage for 40 years, which was almost the standard of living. I mean, that's basically how long people lived. 
So you were getting enough money that you could live off of. So the guy with two talents got enough money that he could live off of the rest of his life. And the guy who got five talents was a hundred years days of wages, almost a million dollars today's money. Now, why would Jesus do that? I mean, if he wanted to make a point, why didn't he say, hey, look, I'm going to give you a thousand, I'm going to give you three thousand, I'm going to give you five thousand, let's see what you can do with it. He gave extraordinary numbers to these servants. And the point behind giving them extraordinary numbers was to impress upon them their worth. Even the guy who got one talent was no flunky. You're not going to give $182,500 to some guy who's a flunky. You might, but you would be a moron to do that. So Jesus is trying to imply, if you read between the lines here, is look, these men that I gave money to are valuable people. I, they have ability. So then we go on to verse 16. So he who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. Now, the guy who, who got five talents, this is that phrase, went at once, is only included with the guy with the five talents. I think intending to say that he was highly motivated. He was on the ball. He was on it. He was going to go out there and do something with those five talents that the master had given to him. And guess what happened? He, he got 100% back. More, he doubled what he'd gotten. Verse 17, so also he who had two talents made two talents more. So you don't get the sense, I don't get the sense in which he was quite as on the ball as the guy with five talents, but on the ball enough that he still doubled what he had been given. So each of the first two had a 100% return, extraordinary by ancient standards, but possible over extended time. Like, so for example, if I gave you $182,500 and I said, I want you to double this by next week by investing it, you would tell me, you're, you're, there's just no way that's going to happen. But if I said, I'm going to give you $182,500, but you have 65 years to double that. That makes it a lot more possible, doesn't it? So he goes on to say, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Verse 19. Now after a long time. They had a long time. They had years to take what God had given to them 
and to magnify it 100%. The average person in the United States lives around 79 years of age. Did you know most social scientists will tell you that when a child is born up until age two, they have almost genius ability? And then something happens to them. And then, you know, the, it, that's no longer the case later on, and there are all kinds of social science reasons why they think that's the case. But So if you have 79 years to double all of the ability that w- you are born with, the potential that you have been given, that's really a long time. Would any of us here say that we have more than doubled the potential that God has placed within us over the course of our lifetime? I can't say that. I want to say that. So, but the one who received the one talent went and dug in the ground. Now, back then, they didn't really have banks, per se, that they could put money into. So many people hid there are valuable things in the ground. Treasure, coins, was quite common. So you remember when Jesus was talking about the parable about the, the, the treasure found in the field and the guy went out and he sold all he had so he could buy that field to get to that treasure? Well, that was what was implied. Somebody had buried their treasure in that field and had forgotten about it or whatever. So he didn't... So Jews were not allowed to lend to each other and ask for interest. But they were allowed to lend to Gentiles and ask for interest. <laughs> Sounds so very Jewish in some ways, doesn't it? So uh, in any case, uh, that's, what, uh, that's what he could have done, but he didn't do that. So he goes on to say, um, and it goes on to say, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered or entrusted to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. You get this impression that he was excited about what he had done with his life and how he was able to improve upon what the master had given to him. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. Again, he seemed to be excited and, 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 and um, enthusiastic about being able to give that to the master. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And so here we have this idea, uh, a number of things I want to just uh, uh, take away from this particular passage. We all long for affirmation and praise from those who are in authority and leadership over all of us. Moreover, we appreciate and celebrate when they reward us for work well done. We all long for that. A number of years ago, I worked at First Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Ohio. 
I was there for eight years. I worked very hard. In some ways, I could probably look back and say maybe that was maybe the highlight of my ministry or career because we got a lot done. We were able to transform that community in many, I mean the community. So think of a place like Beaver. And we were able to transform that community in many ways. Now I'm going to share this with you. Never shared it before. But I want to make sort of a a contrast of sorts. I have here the Ohio House of Representatives. When I left Lancaster, John D. Myers, the representative of our, our district, wrote this, or had this go through the House on my behalf. It says, on behalf of the members of the House of Representatives of the 121st General Assembly of Ohio, we are pleased to extend special recognition to Rich Grassell. For eight years of dedicated service as a youth pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, throughout your many years in Christian ministry, you may have demonstrated exemplary commitment, integrity, generosity, and have earned the respect and admiration of countless individuals. Uh, Let me just say, that was the best side of me. There was a bad side of me, too. And I had my detractors as well, okay? As a religious leader for area students in grades 7 through 12, you have not been not only a pastor, but also a teacher, scholar, and friend whose door is always open to those in need of special guidance and counsel. During your tenure with First Presbyterian Church, you fulfilled your obligations in a truly praiseworthy manner. Your positive philosophy of life and your dedication to the teachings of Jesus Christ have been an inspiration to all who have enjoyed the privilege of your association over the years, and the youth of Fairfield County have indeed been blessed to have a sincere and devoted leader. Thus, with great pleasure, we congratulate you on your eight years of service to the First Presbyterian Church in Lancaster and salute you as Ohio religious leaders. So this is what it looks like. It's great when you live your life and you work hard and you are recognized in this kind of a way. But this doesn't compare to the recognition that comes from Jesus Christ who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is nothing in comparison to that. I can pursue that kind of stuff all I want. But if it doesn't do what God has ordained for me to do with my time, with the potential, with the gifts that he has given to me, all of that means nothing. It will not get me into heaven. It will not allow me to enter into the joy of Jesus Christ. It will not give my life any extra meaning, really. Things like that can be a dime a dozen in this world. We all hope for the affirmation and the encouragement from parents or older siblings, managers or CEOs, 
even government officials, coaches, and mentors. But there should be no greater longing in all of our hearts here than to hear those words by God the Father, well done, good and faithful servant, and to hear those words that should light us up with joy Enter into the joy of your master. This is the God of the universe. Inviting those two servants into his joy. What could possibly be better than that? So, a couple of final conclusions about this section. The master's identical statements to both servants, those statements of praise show that it was important not only, so what was important was not only the total amount earned, but the faithfulness in utilizing their gifts and potential. Look, you have to understand that what he said was that he gave those, those talents to those men, each according to to their ability. When I talk in this room about doing great things for Christ, there might be some here who would say, look, I, I, you know, I, some, there are some days I can barely put one foot in front of the other. I don't know how in the world I would ever be able to do anything great for Christ. All Christ requires of anybody in this world is simply to be faithful to what he has called you to do. And he is not going to call you to anything more than what you have been gifted to do. There may be some people here that all you can do is your prayer warrior. And that's what God wants you to do. So do it. There may be some here where God calls you to serve in some capacity. And you have a unique ability to serve in some capacity. So you're not going to be some great theologian or Bible teacher or missionary or whatever. But you have the ability to be a blessing to other people and to serve Christ faithfully by using that particular thing. Then do it faithfully. And I would suspect that any church and its people that line themselves up in that kind of a way can have an unbelievable impact upon the community in which they live. And the reason why churches do not have the kind of community impact that they should is because its people do not line themselves up doing what they have been called to do in the most simple of ways for some. Simply do that where some people in the church cannot respect the more simple way in which some people exercise their faith and what they've been called to do, that's bad too. But if each person does their thing, what God, and so on, uh, hopefully I'll be able to you know, get to it because uh, I'm going to be done in just a couple of minutes, but that's what he's saying here. God is no respecter of persons. Just because one person may be gifted in a certain way that is more socially 
celebrated in another way does not mean that that person is any better than the person who does not have as much socially. Number two, if we have been faithful even with a little, God will reward us and honor us with even greater responsibility and stewardship in the life to come. We have a job to do when we leave this world and go into the next. And based on how we do this job here, God will reward us and give us new stewardship abilities in the world to come. Verse 24, he, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now note that the third servant claims to have feared losing his master's money, which can easily happen with investments. He accuses the master of being harsh and unfair, though nothing elsewhere in the parable suggests that this accusation is valid. Note, too, about the servant's statement. The servant stands condemned by his own logic. The master points out that if he really were so harsh, then the man should have feared all the more not trying to earn money with what he had been entrusted to. At least he could have deposited it with local bankers so there could have been so it would have earned some modest interest uh, without the risks of other kinds of investment. Verse 25. So he says, I was afraid. Can it be that the reason why we do not serve God, the reason why we do not use the time that God has given to us is because what directs those distractions are interferes of not being loved, not being accepted, fears of losing some kind of pleasure, significance, a title. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. And so we get this rhetorical response from the master. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, have not, where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was, what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has... Uh, for to everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which was a standard way in that in Judaism of describing hell itself. Now that I have much more and I'm not going to get to it, but we have to turn this corner. Not just our church, but the church in general has to turn this corner. About using their time wisely with great intentionality and purpose so that we can fill the remainder of our days 
using the talent and the abilities that God has given to us. This body has to do that. This pastor has to do that. So that we can meet the challenges that are very clearly in front of us all. So next week, I will talk more about what that might look like. And I pray that all of us will spend some time reviewing the texts that I have shared with you this morning and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us and inspire us because Jesus Christ is worthy. You know, those first two servants, they were so pleased. That's how I read that text. They were so pleased to be able to report to the master what they had done over the course of all that time with what he had trusted them with. Don't you want to do the same? Don't you want to be able to stand before the Lord and allow your testimony to speak for you and be able to say, see, you entrusted me with this, but look what I've done with it. And to hear those, vo- those words rain down over our ears. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. <laughs>